And as you find your way there, I want to draw your attention to a very common situation. A person decides to obey God, uh, to refuse to take the easy road, to do what God has asked, and then things do not go like they thought that they would. Uh, Maybe you're a single woman, and you have refused to date non-Christian men, and now you get the joy of spending a lot of nights at home with the phone not ringing all by yourself. Maybe you are an employee who who discovered corruption at your company, and then when you brought it up to your, your employer, your supervisor, you were labeled a troublemaker and denied promotion. Maybe you shared your testimony of how you came to faith in Jesus Christ with a brand new friend, and though you still see each other from time to time, you're no longer really friends, you're more like acquaintances. And the sharing of your testimony didn't bring you closer, it brought you further away. Maybe you're a parent, and out of everything possible, you raised your child to know the Lord. They saw your example. You lived for Jesus as best as you can. You shared the gospel with them. Maybe you took them to a good church. Maybe you took them to this church. And you then watched as your adult child walked away from Jesus with all the energy they could muster. Maybe you got married to a Christian spouse, and instead of experiencing the great joy of a happy married life, it has been unremittingly painful. And you don't know how to get along. Maybe you launched out into a new ministry full of zeal to use your spiritual gifts, and instead of growing, your ministry shrank. Whatever the situation might be, sometimes there is a wide gap between what we hope will be the reality and the reality we experience. Amen? And I want to tell you this, that the fact of the matter is, is that God's presence with us does not mean that God will immediately deliver us from our circumstances. It doesn't mean that. And if someone told you that become a Christian, follow Jesus, and everything will, in your life will get better, I'm sorry, let me say this with all the kindness I can muster, but they lied to you. That is not true. In fact, nothing in your Bible would indicate that to you. In fact, following Jesus is something very often with significant costs. Rewards and benefits and blessings that far outweigh the costs, amen, but nevertheless, sometimes significant costs. And that is not new. And it does not mean just because God does not immediately deliver, it does not mean that He is untrustworthy or that He does not deliver, or that we should not continue to trust Him when our expectations and our lives don't coincide. Amen? And if you have your Bible, I want you to see how this truth plays out. So open up to Exodus 5 if you're not there, because Moses is experiencing this exact scenario of having a certain set of expectations and having life 
widely diverged from what he thought was going to happen. The text begins this way, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no attention, pay no regard to lying words. Now the chapter begins with this word, afterward. Well, after what? After Moses and Aaron had just gone to the Israelite slaves, they'd showed them the three signs that God gave to Moses these various miracles for him to do that authenticates that he is God's messenger and has received God's message of deliverance for them. And the people hear it and they immediately believe and they worship God. And it's great. And everything went just according to how God had promised Moses it would go. Remember that whole discussion where he says, what if they don't believe me? Well, what if they don't listen? Well, how am I going to know that? How, I don't even know your name. Explain to me how this is going to work. And God says, don't worry about it, Moses. I'm with you. I'll handle it. And he goes, and everything goes just like it should. And everybody worships God, and it's fantastic. And so he and Aaron, they're like, all right, on to Pharaoh. Let's go. And they show up. And they say, Thus saith the Lord. And Pharaoh goes, Who? Who's this Yahweh you're talking about? I don't know who that is. And on top of that, I think your request is ridiculous. I'm not going to let the people go and do anything. Moses and Aaron know who God is. They know him to be a God of covenant love and power, and they know his command on Pharaoh to be fully binding. Pharaoh says, Yahweh? Who is this Lord that you speak of? I don't know him. And he is ignorant about who God is. <coughs> and more to the point, he doesn't care. Because, you see, in the ancient world, this was, this was kind of the understanding theologically, that if you were in power over somebody, it was because the gods that you worshipped were stronger and more powerful than the gods of the people who were subject to you. 
So, and Pharaoh, remember, is worshipped as and believed to be the descendant of one of the gods. In fact, the greatest of the Egyptian gods, Ra, is believed to be the, the ancestor of the Pharaohs. And so the idea, <coughs> excuse me, the idea that somehow the God of the slaves is going to tell a living deity and the gods of Egypt what to do is laughable. And yet, that's what's happening. And Pharaoh says, I'm not doing that. And there's, I don't know who the, who the Lord is, and I don't care, because it doesn't matter. He's the God of the slaves. And if he had any power, they wouldn't be slaves. But Moses and Aaron, literally, I don't know if you remember the Blues Brothers, Remember, we're on a mission from God. They are literally on a mission from God. And so they clarify for Pharaoh, well, maybe you're just ignorant. Let me explain to you who the God we're talking about is, Pharaoh. And so they repeat it. The God of the Hebrews, the Lord, Yahweh, he has met with us. And he's told us that we've got to take a three days journey into the desert Thank you. God bless you. He's told us that we got to go a three days journey into the desert, and if we don't, that plagues might fall on us. And by the way, he leaves vague who us is. Us include the Egyptians? Yeah. This is your warning, Pharaoh. And he, he says, look, I want specifically, a three-day journey into the desert, and if that doesn't happen, plagues are going to come. So it's now clear, and just so you know, we have learned from archaeological records, they've dug up a lot of ancient Egypt, still a lot to be discovered, but they, they dig up new stuff all the time, and they have found that these records of, of Egypt and their, their whole structure of how, the, how they ran their slave labor system and it looks just like Exodus, by the way. And in addition to that, they have found uh, records of slaves requesting time off work to go worship their God and it being granted. And so it's not a totally unusual request. But this is something, I think, that is a test that God is giving Pharaoh. He's asking something that the Egyptians commonly did. And he's wanting to see if Pharaoh's ignorance of who he is is simple ignorance. In other words, I just don't know anything about this God. Or if it's willful rebellion. And Pharaoh makes it very clear. It's willful. He's not just ignorant of God's identity. He's also resistant to God's will. Because a second chance results in an openly rebellious response. It's not just, I don't know, and therefore I'm not going to let the people go. It's get back to work already and stop distracting my slaves from their labor and as if to drive home how completely rebellious against God's, God's word he is, Pharaoh tops it off with a serving of hatred for God's people. And he decides that since the oppressed, overworked Israelites want to serve God so badly, Let's make sure they know who the real God around here is. 
And it ain't Yahweh, it's me. And let them make the same number of bricks as before, but don't give them any straw to make them. Let them go find straw wherever you can, but don't reduce the quota at all. And what is that? That's the actions of a vicious, hateful, bullying tyrant. And by the way, if you want to go see some of these bricks that they make with straw, you can see them. You go up to the Field Museum in Chicago, they have reconstructed inside that building bricks that are made with straw, just like the Bible describes, from the same time period. And he says, go and find bricks, uh, go and find straw for bricks wherever you can. And he says, I'm going to make you forget all about serving Yahweh because you're going to be too busy serving me. And as you'll see, as you read the text, they do forget for a little while who God really is. Let's read on. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foreman of the people whom Israel's, of, of the people of Israel whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today? And yesterday, as in the past. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw was given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You're idle, you're idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you. But you must still deliver the same number of bricks. And the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, first thing I want you to notice here in this text is the parallel language between verse 10 and verse 1. Remember, Moses and Aaron come into Pharaoh, and what do they say? They use the language of the prophets. Thus saith the Lord. So Pharaoh sends his guys out. Thus saith Pharaoh. Let's get it clear here who is really in charge of all you slave people. Thus saith Pharaoh. What's he doing? He set himself up as God. And here in chapter 7, as we'll see, Pharaoh is going to come into direct confrontation with the God of the universe. And he's going to start to and lose view. Because God is going to impress on Pharaoh who God really is. It isn't you. And on top of that, I want you to understand this, that here's how the structure worked. You had Pharaoh at the top, and then you had Egyptian taskmasters who set the quota and made sure it was met. 
And then underneath that, you had Israelite guys who were foremen over the mass of everybody else underneath. And so you had kind of a multi-tiered structure like Amway. And you, <laughs> sorry. And you had to uh, you had to kind of work your way down the chain of command. All right. And and these Israelite foremen super, supervise the Israelites, but when their quota isn't met because they don't have straw, and what they got to do is go out to all the wheat fields and just gather up whatever they can find of all the wheat stubble that's out blowing around and so forth. And they they grab up all that that they can, and they got they're hustling back to make bricks because you got to have it to bind the mud together. And when the quota isn't met, which the foreman knew that it wouldn't be, then the foreman get pulled in by their taskmasters and beaten. And they're shot. Because they had neither done the work, nor had they the means to do it. But they're still beaten. And look at the, what the foremen do. I think this is important, what they do and what they don't do. Do they cry out? To God for justice? No. Instead, they go back to Pharaoh. And they think, well, maybe the taskmasters are simply being unreasonable without authorization, I think, is what's going on here. You know, because think about what kind of person you have to be to want to be a taskmaster over a bunch of slaves. You're probably not a very nice person, I'm guessing. There's probably a wide streak of bully that runs through you. You want to be a slave master. And so they, they, they go to Pharaoh exactly, and, they, and look at how they address themselves in front of Pharaoh. They say, your servant. Pharaoh's plan is working, in other words, because increased oppression has made the people look to Pharaoh rather than to the Lord for deliverance. It made those to whom God had made promises of deliverance that he would set them free to serve him, made them go back to their old master and serve him Excuse me, instead. And in fact, it made them curse those whom God had sent to set them free. Look at the text. See that? Moses and Aaron are out there, and they're like, so how did it go? And they're like, God, curse you. God, bring curses on you, because you have made us odious in the sight of Pharaoh. You've made him hate us, even worse than he hated us before. You've made us a stink in his, in his nostrils. You've made us, you put a sword in the Egyptians' hands to kill us. Now, what had they forgotten? That God had told them that this was going to happen and that he was going to deliver anyway. They didn't trust the Lord. They forgot about him because the oppression increased. They have forgotten that God's presence with them does not mean that God will immediately deliver from their circumstances. It doesn't mean that. 
doesn't mean that he's untrustworthy. It doesn't mean that he does not deliver. But, and it does not mean that they shouldn't continue to trust him even though their expectations and their lives don't coincide. What it does mean is that God has promised and his promises are good. And you need to continue to trust and obey him even when their circumstances get incredibly difficult. And they do. This is as virtually as bad as it can be without putting them to death. But look at what Moses does. Read with me here, verse 22 and 23. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Maybe you can relate to Moses' question. You did what God said, and instead of things getting better, they got worse. They not only didn't miraculously fall into place like you had hoped or anticipated, in fact, they went as nearly the opposite of what you expected as it's possible to be. Things completely backfired, and that's what happened. You, could, you can't say like Hannibal on the A-team. You remember him? The guy with the cigar? He was great. He'd be like, I love it when a plan comes together, right? And that's what, Mo, that's what Moses and Aaron are thinking when they go into Pharaoh. I love it when a plan comes together, God. This is going to be great. I'm so glad you sent me. And then all this stuff happens, and they go, they got another question. Lord, what gives? You sent us to deliver these people. It would have been better for them if I had stayed in Midian. Because they were better off than before I got here. At least then they didn't have to try to make bricks without straw and have to work twice as hard to do the same job. Lord, what gives? And you know something? Moses tells God exactly how he feels. And you know something else? As you read your Bible, those are the people that God commends as people of faith. The ones who tell him exactly what they think and exactly how they feel. And they don't grumble among themselves and gripe to each other. They gripe to Him. You'll, you can read your Bible, and seriously, I'll promise you this. You can never find an instance of somebody complaining to God where God says, Hey, man, shut up. I'm God. Okay? No, in fact, as you read, as you read the Psalms, what you see is David and other psalmists crying out to God over and over and over and over in some very vivid ways. If you don't believe me, read Psalm 69. It's a good one. It starts out like this. My eyes are going blind from looking for you, and my voice is hoarse from calling your name, and I'm like a drowning man going down for the last time, and I don't know where you are, but you are absent. What gives, God? God shows up, and he answers. And 
David is called the man after God's own heart, remember? Because whenever he was in trouble, he didn't run away from God, he ran toward him. And you can look at Moses, and all the way through the book of Exodus, and if you read Numbers and Deuteronomy, what you see is the people all, they're griping and grumbling all the time. But what's Moses doing? He goes to the Lord and says, Lord, help me out here, I'm in trouble. And these people are ready to kill me. And he tells God exactly how he feels about the situation that he's in. And you know who else does this? Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember how he prays? Uh, Lord, I know this is part of the plan, but if it will be your will, and understand I'm ready to do your will, Lord, but if it would be your will, I would like this cup to pass from me. And you know how often he does that? Three times. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, Lord, I'm on board and I'll obey, but I don't like this. This is not the fun part of the plan, remember? And it's okay to talk to the Lord that way. To go boldly before the Lord and say exactly what's on your heart. And He is a big enough and He is loving enough God to handle it. And Moses prays, why did you even send me on this? You haven't done anything you promised and things are now worse than they were. God, what gives? And God's going to give His answer. But for that, you've got to come back next week. All right, in the meantime, um, I want to underline some things this passage is teaching us, okay? Number one, if you get nothing else out of this message, get this. That God's presence with you doesn't mean that God is immediately going to deliver you from every one of your circumstances. Sometimes God's plan does not coincide with yours. Sometimes it does, and that's great. But sometimes it doesn't. And his ways are not necessarily our ways. And his paths are not necessarily what we would choose for ourselves. Moses and Israel thought, well, you know, God has said his plan is to deliver, so let's get on with it already. But God's plan was not simply to deliver these people for a few years or for a brief period. It was to deliver them permanently from the power of of Egypt as a nation. And for that to happen, the plagues have got to come. And for that to happen, God is going to give Pharaoh this one last chance to avoid the whacking that is coming on him and his nation. And God in his grace is giving Pharaoh one final opportunity to turn to him before the plagues come. But nevertheless, plagues are coming, but it's going to take time. And God's deliverance is, is working. But the fact that, that God does not do immediately what we think He should do doesn't mean He's doing nothing. And it doesn't mean we've been abandoned. It means that we have to continue to trust and obey God and wait for His plan to unfold. Amen? Number two, this passage teaches us this. Don't return to your old master. 
That's what the foreman did, remember? They went back to Pharaoh because they had forgotten about who their new master was. And they pleaded with him for relief from the, the oppression that he had laid on them. And sometimes, let me just draw this out a little bit, sometimes when we get disappointed and we get hurt and we start to feel like God is not, does, must not care about me because my life is not going the way I thought, what we're tempted to do is to find our old master, sin, and go sign up for some more time with him. To be enslaved to him a little while longer. And so maybe we're in pain and so we, we get a few of our closest friends, you know, Jim Beam and Jack Daniels and, you know, whoever, and we gather around with them and we crawl inside that bottle and we soothe the pain that we feel. Is it a sin to drink? Not necessarily, but it is a sin to get drunk, and it is a sin to pursue that as some kind of a means of spiritual health. Or we decide that, well, things aren't working out for me in my relationship with God, and this girl or this guy is really cute, and they like me. And so I'm going to invest all of my life into that, and I know God has moral standards in these things, but I'm... God hasn't been a big help to me, so I'm just going to ignore all of that. Or I'm going to stop going to church because those people call me into a relationship with God that I don't really like right now, and so I'm going to instead start hanging out with my old friends and have some fun. Or maybe it's nothing quite so obvious. But what happens is we allow very quietly, our passion for Jesus and our zeal for obeying Him to simply fade away. And we just go through the motions of the Christian life where we're not overtly rebellious, but we're not really committed to following Jesus either. Don't go back to your old master. You have a new master. A master who loves you who died on the cross to set you free from all that junk and to give you a new life that you might have an abundant life of following Him. Does that mean everything's going to be fantastic? No. But it does mean that the rewards are significant and far outweigh. Paul says, there is laid up for me an eternal weight of glory which far out exceeds everything in this life. Amen. And on top of that, there is blessing now also for being obedient and following Jesus. Don't go back to your old master. And number three, instead, cry out to the Lord Jesus. God is big enough to handle your questions, your gripes, your complaints, your just, you know, your scream into the universe when things don't go the way you thought. You ever done that? Just go outside and just yell as loud as you can because you don't know what else to do? Or or some of you guys, maybe you've got a heavy bag in the basement and you just, because you're just torqued and you don't know what else to do with life. At those moments, cry out to Jesus. He is sovereign enough to be working all things, even these things, together for your good and His glory. Amen?
And he is loving enough to listen to your cry and to do something about it according to his plan and his purposes for you, which are good and loving and perfect. Amen? Last thing. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, know that the Lord will hear your prayer for deliverance from death and sin and hell. The Lord will hear your prayer. Because whether you know it or not, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you are at this moment headed to hell on a rocket ship. You are working your way there by every act of sin that you do, by your active rebellion against God. And God loves you, and He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you, that you would not have to be enslaved to sin and experience death and hell in the way that an unbeliever does. He came to redeem you from all that, to take you out of slavery to sin, to set you free from the penalty of death, to take, to take you out of hell and bring you into heaven, into the very presence of God and the family of God. And so if you have never believed that, I invite you right now to put your trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead to give you new life, to give you a new master, to set you free from slavery to your old life and to give you a new one in a far better promised land than Moses ever took anybody to. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you that your plans are not our plans, that your plans are better. That your ways are not our ways because your ways are better. And though we experience pain in this life, though we experience difficulty and disappointment and struggle, Father, help us to trust and obey you through those things, to cry out to you for deliverance knowing that you are a God not only of power and of sovereignty, but also a God of grace and of love who hears our cries and does something about them. According to your will and your plan and your purpose, you bring all things together for good for those of us who love you. And you bring our good and your glory out of every circumstance. Father, help us to trust you. Help us to live by faith, knowing that Faith is the assurance of things that we hope for and the certainty of what we do not yet see, but is coming, just as Christ is coming. Father, help us to look toward you in faith, cry out to you when we are in need. In Jesus' name, amen.